This morning, we continue our series where we are looking at the Old Testament and the New Testament, going back and forth week by week to see and understand the gospel. The gospel where God rescues us by his grace alone and what we do to receive what he's done is we trust in him. And this week, so we are back in the Old Testament and we're in the seemingly obscure prophetical book of Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 3. And concerning that passage you just heard read in Zechariah, let me just say, church, this is really an incredible and wonderful chapter. It really is. And after studying it this week, I came to love it even more and more. And I hope you do as well. And the reason for that is, well, first concerning this passage, the truth is that it is in some ways somewhat of a random passage occurring in Israel's history. And it can definitely seem random to us. Because in history, long story short, this is the second to last book in the Old Testament because Zechariah was one of the prophets to the Israelites after they had returned to the land from exile. And so quickly, just the storyline of the Old Testament, as most of you probably might know, uh, after the Israelites were taken out of Egypt, then they entered eventually into the promised land, then they had some kings, and they were mostly, though, unfaithful, so then they were eventually exiled out of the land. But then, at the end of the Old Testament, many of them were finally coming back into the land. And Zechariah is a prophet during that time, as many of these exiles are coming back into the land of Israel. So that's the history here. And then concerning this book itself, in brief, it mainly is actually a bunch of visions that the Lord gave the prophet Zechariah to see, which all have slightly different meanings. And so that's where we are in the Old Testament. That's this book itself. And all that said, we may wonder then, but what does this have to do with us in the gospel? And the answer to that is, as you might have heard in the scripture reading, well, has a lot to do with us because here in Zechariah 3, it first might sound confusing, but once it's understood, I really believe this whole chapter may be one of the clearest Old Testament pictures of what happens in the gospel for you and me that there is. I really think that. And again, I do hope that perhaps by the end of this morning, you'll see that and that you might even see that this might be one of your favorite chapters in the whole Bible. But that said, I'm building this up a bit, but let's just dive into it. But before we even do that, quickly, just as for an outline for how we'll go through this whole chapter, we're going to go through all of verses 1 through 10 here. And to do so, we're going to go verse by verse, as always, and we're going to have three main sections to do so. Three main sections. First, we're going to be in verses 1 through 3. There we're going to see the main characters in this vision, what's going on, the big issue here. Which then second will lead us to verses 4 and 5, where we're going to see the gospel of what God, or really what Jesus does about the main issue, which then third will lead us to verses 6 through 10, where we'll see how God shows us what the vision ultimately represents, and he promises something to come. And so that's where we're going. In summary, three sections on this vision that God gave to Zechariah about 2,500 years ago. First, the main characters in the issue. Second, the good news that God does about the issue. And third, what this vision ultimately represents. But all it said, let's just begin our first section then, church. And here again, verses just one through three, looking at the main characters of this vision. What's going on? What's the issue? And for this, we're just going to go verse at a time through these first three verses. And so to begin, look down at Zechariah 3, verse 1. So once again, the book of Zechariah is mainly a bunch of different visions that God shows this prophet back then. And here's another one of them beginning like this. Verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. 
So in this first verse, there's three main characters that Zechariah shown here, right? Three main characters. Character number one is Joshua the high priest. And remember, the high priest back then was in charge of, of leading the people of God to worship the God and to sacrifice to God. And they were obviously supposed to be pretty holy themselves so they could do that for God's people. And so first, Zechariah sees Joshua the high priest. And then we see character number two in how Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord is angel. In Hebrew, it's just the same word for messenger. And he's a very important character here as well. Because as we'll see, in this vision, it's fascinating. Because often the angel of the Lord is mentioned. But then, when the angel of the Lord speaks, he speaks as the Lord himself. Meaning when he speaks, he speaks as Yahweh God himself. And just so you know, this happens in the Old Testament a handful of times with this angel of the Lord. For example, like when Abraham, you might know the story, meets three angels in Genesis. And yet one of them is said to be the angel of the Lord. And that one talks to Abraham as the Lord himself. There's other places like that as well in the Old Testament. Because of that, many people, and I myself, think that actually in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord very well may have been, and I think he was, usually the son of God himself. The second person of the Trinity. Jesus, the main messenger of God. And quickly, that does not mean that Jesus himself is an actual angel, but he could have just taken on the form to look like that sometimes. And again, the word angel just means messenger in Hebrew. But anyway, so that's where we are in this vision. We have Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. But then there's obviously this third character here, right? The third character. And this is now Satan, or the accuser, standing right next to Joshua to accuse him. And quickly on him, in the original Hebrew, we need to know that the word Satan is literally just the same exact word for accuser. And also it's helpful to know that in the original here, there's the word the there. So it's the accuser. And so on this, the options are, number one, that this could just more generally be that Zechariah is seeing a picture of a courtroom where there's this general the accuser, or as we might say, the plaintiff who's making the case against Joshua. And in that way, this could not be actually talking about Satan, who we now know is a real uh, demon. But also for a second option, this could literally be Satan himself standing here in this vision. The ultimate, the accuser, standing next to Joshua. And the ESV takes that interpretation. But either way, more important than that, it, it, even if it's just some general accuser or Satan, the main point here though is he is in this vision to legally accuse Joshua in a trial before the presence of the Lord. Okay, so that's verse 1 and the characters and the scene here. Which now moving on leads us to verse 2. So look down at verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And so we have the character set in verse 1. And now here in verse 2, to start the trial, the judge initiates and speaks. And quickly on this, notice when the judge speaks, we know the judge is the angel of the Lord, and yet it's not the angel of the Lord who speaks here, but just the Lord himself. You can see that. And so the Lord initiates and speaks, and what does he say? Well, he rebukes this accuser. And why? Well, look at it. He, there's essentially two reasons. First, notice the Lord brings up how he has chosen Jerusalem. And that's clearly a symbolic way of talking about how he has his people in Jerusalem. He's chosen them. And implied is that this Joshua, he's one of them. 
And then second, notice the other reason he rebukes, he puts in the form of a question. Isn't this not a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, the Lord is saying to this accuser or Satan, and Joshua here is a brand, meaning a burning stick that's been plucked out of the fire, rescued from the fire. And quickly on that, we need to know that that was the language used of the Exodus sometimes in the Old Testament because the Jews were in a sense suffering in the fire in Egypt and God came and plucked them out. And so here the idea also seems to be, and Joshua is really one of my people. He's an Israelite. Okay, so that's all verses 1 and 2, which finally all leads though to verse 3. And here now is where, here is where we finally now see why this vision is even happening. And we see the big issue. So now look down at verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord, clothed with filthy garments. So this is fascinating because we might think that after what happened in verse 2, right, the vision should end. Right, since the Lord has rebuked Satan. But here's now why this vision is happening, church. Because it's true. In the Old Testament here, God has his people Israel. And Joshua is one of them. And he's plucked them from the fire in a sense. And yet, the reason why this accuser or Satan is really here in this vision. And the reason why he has a legitimate accusation is, well, Joshua, the high priest, is filthy. <laughs> He's filthy. He's wearing filthy garments. And that's huge and has significance for two reasons. First, because remember, he's the high priest. And so he cannot be filthy and lead the people to God because if he's filthy, he and his people, his leading, have no chance to have a relationship with God because God is perfectly holy and, and loving and can't dwell with such filth. But not only that, but then second, that's significant again. Joshua being filthy means, let's just all be really clear on this, it means that Satan then in this picture does have good reason to legally accuse Joshua. You get that? That's the point. Because God can say, he's an Israelite. But Satan, and again, this is where literally if it's Satan or just some accuser, still the point is because of the reality of justice, the truth is, if Joshua is genuinely filthy, then there is an accusation to make. Because the reality of justice says, nope, look, he's, he's messed up. He's disgusting. He can't actually dwell with you, God. That's why Satan has an accusation. Because Joshua is actually filthy. All right, so that's verses 1 through 3 here, church, in our first section. And in this chapter, that is all setting us up for verses 4 and 5 to come. And also, though, in a striking way, I hope we all know that already is a picture of what's true in the gospel message. It's true in the gospel message. And this, this picture is really helpful. And honestly, this might, some of this might be a little new to you because maybe you've always just assumed that the gospel is that, yes, God forgives us and he saves us. And, of course, you know that we're sinful and filthy on our own, which that, those are symbolized here. But maybe you've never considered that also part of the true gospel and the reason we need the gospel church is the reality of justice and even a legal accusation that rightly comes to us because of our sin. 
And follow along, because this is central to the gospel, and the New Testament picks up on this over and over, both Jesus and his apostles. Because we may think that the biggest issue with our sin is that it's just bad, or that we just need forgiveness from God, and both of those are true. But also, you and I need to realize that the reason why sin is also so serious is because in the realm of justice, we've, we've really done wrong. And so if God is just, which he is, then he can't, he can't just act like what we've done isn't a big deal. He can't just sweep what we've done under the rug, pretend like it's nothing. Just like you and I know that if any judge today were to come up against some real wrongdoing with clear evidence that the person did a heinous crime and just say whatever, that would be unjust. All right, even more specifically on this vision, think of this perspective from real demonic forces that want you and I so badly to not be close to God. Because with them, the issue, our issue is because of our sin, the truth is they do have a legitimate argument and accusation against us. An argument that in our sin, we can't be close to that holy God. They know that. And quickly, just so you know, this is why, and I've heard this before and I think it's true, that this is why really Satan's greatest weapon against any person is unforgiven and undealt with sin. It's unforgiven, undealt with sin. It really is. Because he knows that's alone what will keep us from God forever. All right, and that means, let's be really clear, Satan and the demons are real, but their, their main goal is not just to scare us or to make us think about them or just to change culture or to make us think about huge and obviously bad things. They may or, not, they may or may not do some of those things. Instead, church, this here in Zechariah 3 is the biblical picture of Satan. He's not there to scare Joshua. He's not there to mainly be some dark figure. Instead, his name literally means the accuser because his main goal and his main weapon is to legally accuse Joshua and even to point out to God, look, he's filthy. And if Joshua remains filthy, the accuser will continue to have a proper accusation against him. Justice requires it. And, and church, so it is for us, on our own, we, we are filthy. <laughs> and that's a big deal, not just because sin is bad, but because of justice, God's justice, because that sin, that filth, does and should keep us away from God. Okay, so that's our first section. But that now leads us to our second. And now here we're going to be in just verses 4 and 5, and we'll see the gospel of what God, or really what Jesus than does to solve our issue. And it's amazing. And again, as you hear these verses, just notice how clear the gospel is in Zechariah 3. And so now we're actually just going to read verses 4 and 5 together, and then we'll talk about them. So there's this angel of the Lord rebuking Satan, but Joshua's filthy, which leads to this happening, verses 4 and 5. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So, so as you might have noticed, that that's about as clear gospel in some ways as you can get. And it shows us that in God's courtroom church, this is what we need. So, but let's break it down. So, so what happens? So remember, Joshua's filthy. That's the big issue. But then, right away in verse 4, the angel, meaning the angel of the Lord, commands these others who are standing before him to remove Joshua's filthy garments. 
And quickly, that's, that's what Joshua needs, right? So now Joshua is removed of his filthy garments, but it doesn't even stop there. Because then the angel of the Lord speaks directly to Joshua and adds this in verse 4. And this is amazing. He says, quote, behold, an emphatic word meaning look, pay attention to this. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And that, that's incredible. This angel of the Lord is removing Joshua's very iniquity. Right, and here's one of those places where we can see why so many people who study the Old Testament think that this is the second person in the Trinity, the Son of God himself. Because in the Old Testament, a mere angel can't just unilaterally remove someone's iniquity. Only God can forgive sins. Old Testament idea, New Testament idea. And yet here, it is the angel of the Lord who removes his iniquity and speaks as God himself. But not only that, but remember, this is a courtroom setting. And here's where it all starts to really even come together. Because this is the angel of the Lord saying, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you. And notice though, he's not just saying, Behold, I'm randomly going to take away your filthy clothes. Because think about it with me. If theoretically he said just that, I'm just going to take away your clothes, then the accuser who's here could have stood up and said, Nope. That's wrong. You can't just do that. That's unjust. You can't just remove his clothes and sweep this under the rug and act like it doesn't matter. And yet, church, notice God, this angel of the Lord, is somehow able to say, I have removed your iniquity away from you. In other words, he knows that he has done something. And here's, remember, God is outside of time. He knows he's done something, not just to remove Joshua's dirty clothes, but to take away his very iniquity. You see that? Because he want, it'd be one thing if he just removed his external clothes, but he says he has actually removed his very iniquity. And quickly, that word iniquity is important and helpful, and it matters for us. Because in verse 3, right, the idea is filthy clothes. It more so emphasizes how it looks on the outside, right? Filth. But concerning iniquity here in verse 4, as one commentator I read this week said on this word, quote, iniquity is a good term for the whole sinful disposition leading to distress and guilt. Let me say that again. Iniquity is the whole sinful disposition leading to distress and guilt. And the point is, that's then what God, what this angel of the Lord Jesus is removing from Joshua the high priest here. He doesn't just externally remove his filth. Instead, apparently he knows that he has done something so deep that it removes Joshua's very iniquity, the very thing within Joshua's deepest self which leads to his distress and guilt before God and all those individual sins that come with it. He has removed that from this legal accusation. That's what the removal of the filthy garments symbolizes. But before we even do, apply that, right? moving on, that's only actually half of what the angel of the Lord does here though, right? With Joshua. You can see it. Because once Joshua's garments and iniquity is removed, he isn't then, importantly, he isn't then in this vision naked though. Right? Instead, what then happens? Well, then he's actually even given these pure vestments. And in the vision, think about Zechariah seeing this, this actually makes sense. Because it'd be one thing for Joshua the high priest to not have a filthy wardrobe, but in order for him to serve as the high priest, he also needs fitting clothing. And, and, and he's given that. 
Right? And that's, in short, why he's given these pure vestments. And that's actually why Zechariah, you can see interestingly, juts in and adds in verse 5 that Joshua should be given a turban as well. Because he knows that a turban is what the high priest wore. Which then, on these verses, finally, after all of that, in verse 5, as you can see, just look at the very end. God's word just wants us to know one more time, quote, And the angel of the Lord was standing by. In other words, he's the one doing and overseeing all that's happening. And I love that because, again, he's really the point. I said, that was a lot, but again, church, that's then our second section in verses 4 and 5. And I hope you see it. Really, that's the gospel, church. That's the gospel. And that really then does apply to you and me. Because first, Satan is standing there to accuse And he, in the reality of justice, have a legitimate accusation against filthy Joshua. We have to get that. But then Jesus comes. And literally, I do think that this is the Son of God in the Old Testament. He comes and he does something so drastic. He symbolically removes Joshua's filthy garments. But ultimately, why? Well, because behold, he has removed his very iniquity. And church, that is what Jesus does for you and me in the gospel. I I hope we know that. Because if you know Jesus, he has done something where he's able to say to you in love and in power and in justice, he's able to say to you, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. Personally, he says that to you, he's done that. On the cross, he literally did what needed to be done to declare that to you and to me in the face of any accusations that someone like Satan might have or in the face of any accusations that you and I might have when we think we've done things that just can't be forgiven. He declares to us, I have done what's needed to be done to remove that completely from you. But again, that's only actually half of what he does here concerning the gospel. Because just like Zechariah then isn't naked, but is given pure clothes. So for us, in order for us to really commune with and forever dwell with God, we also just can't be sinless and uh, free of all the negatives. Instead, we too are clothed in pure vestments in the sense. And concerning the gospel, we need to know we get that in Jesus as well. And that's why if you read the New Testament, you'll notice that what Jesus and his apostles teach is that we're not only forgiven of all of our negative sins in Jesus, but then also in Christ, we are positively given the righteousness of Christ to wear as well. Or as the New Testament puts it right, Jesus takes our sins, he takes those upon himself, and then we get to take upon ourselves his perfect life and his righteousness And both of those are really important because in order to dwell with God now and forever, we can't just be these sinless blobs, but also we must be fully righteous. And the beautiful thing is we are wearing the righteousness of Christ. Which then finally, as for one last thing on this section for us in the gospel, finally, and I I really love this also now, after we've, we've all seen these five verses, now after understanding those verses, just ask yourself, And concerning this vision, what did Joshua do to get all this? (laughs) Or ask yourself in conjunction with that, and Satan's in this vision, and so what did he do to stop it? And the answer to both is nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Because concerning Joshua, this is part of the gospel as well, right? He is filthy, but Jesus does what's needed to be done to cleanse him and clothe him. And what does Joshua do in this vision to make himself deserve that happening? Nothing. 
In these verses, notice there is no hint that Joshua does something in exchange to earn or deserve this at all. Instead, he's the filthy one. He deserves the opposite. And also, importantly, notice Satan in these verses doesn't really do anything either. And that's significant as well, both in this vision and in the gospel. Because remember, the reason Satan is here is because he has a legitimate accusation against Joshua when he's filthy. And he does have legitimate accusations against you and I on our own if we don't trust in Jesus and we're still in our sins. But then, when Jesus decides to do this with Joshua, and church, when Jesus decides to remove our iniquity and clothes us, clothe us, Satan can't stop it. He can't do a thing. And why? Well, because he knows that Jesus has done what's needed to be done to, in justice, remove Joshua's and remove our iniquity. You get that? And so, therefore, Satan, yes, probably is really frustrated. And yes, I'm sure he hates this happening. But in the end, he knows he has no more legitimate legal accusations to make against Joshua or against us. All because of what God, of what Jesus has done for us. The good news is that complete and that good. And in Christ, our legal case is truly closed and finished. (laughs) So that's our second section, which finally now leads us to our third and last. For this, now we're going to be in all verses 6 through 10. And we're going to see here what God shows us this vision ultimately represents and what he promises us to come. And for this, we're just going to take it uh, a verse or two at a time. And we'll begin in verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7. So remember, Joshua's just been cleansed and given new robes by God's grace alone, which fittingly leads to this happening in verses 6 and 7. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So first in those verses, notice again, it's the angel of the Lord saying this, but he's speaking as and for the Lord himself. And what does he say? Well, remember, Joshua's the high priest. And so a lot of this is high priest language. And so now here, after being cleansed and given his new clothes to wear, He now basically receives this calling to walk in God's ways and keep his charge. That's the main idea here. And just so you know that if there is in context like this in the Old Testament, the New Testament, not because Joshua now needs to earn his salvation and his forgiveness and merit his new clothes. He's already been given all that. But instead, now that he is cleansed, there's a way to live in response. So that's verses 6 and 7. And quickly for us, let's let's realize that that's a huge part of the gospel as well. Because just like Joshua, once we're forgiven and cleansed and have Jesus' righteousness, then we are charged to live accordingly. And by the Spirit, we even want to live accordingly. That's verses 6 and 7. But now that leads to the next step in the section. And it leads us to verse 8. But before we even read this, honestly, just think about this with me. This passage, already, after verses 1 through 7, it could have ended really neatly just right there. That's it. It could have been one through seven. And if it did, it'd already be an amazing picture of the gospel with such clear symbols of forgiveness and clean clothes and a new life. Plus, there's already been an astonishing picture of Jesus, right? With him most likely being this angel of the Lord. And so church, if the vision ended there, we'd probably still be going over it this morning in our series. And yet amazingly, the passage does not end there because now it takes another turn where we start to see God make it so clear what this ultimately represents. 
So now look down, continuing on, verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for behold, they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. So now, stick with me. The reason I think this takes a turn here is because one could mainly think, after reading what we just read in verses 1 through 7, that this is mainly just about Joshua. Right? This is Joshua the high priest back then. This happened to him. But now in verse 8 here, it starts with here now, a phrase saying, listen up, this is really important. And what is Joshua then told? Well, he's told that he and those around him, they're actually a sign. They're not the ultimate point even of this picture. But they're pointing to something else. And what are they pointing to? Well, God says, quote, behold, another emphatic time, behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Now, that probably sounds strange to us, and it probably even did to them back then. But in short, this idea of the branch at this point in the Old Testament was becoming a th- a, a, an idea of the greater king, the greater priest, the Messiah coming. And the reason the word branch was used by God is because God was saying that from David's family tree, if you will, somebody would shoot off a branch who would come. All right, so that's verse 8. And so now God is telling us that this passage actually, and, and Joshua and all he's gone through, they're not the ultimate point. Instead, it's a sign pointing us to the coming branch. But what does that really mean? Well, now finally, for the climactic verse and part of this whole picture, it leads us to verse 9. So all that happened to Joshua. He's a sign of what? The coming branch, but still, what's that all about? Verse 9. For behold, on the stone that I've set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So again, notice, for behold, meaning God is really trying to show us something important. And then God first talks to Joshua about the seven-eyed or seven-sided. It's the same word in Hebrew. It can mean the same thing. Seven-sided stone, inscribed stone. And quickly on that, scholars love to debate exactly what's going on there. But in short, as Joshua was the high priest who, who wore a turban, many people, and I take this view, probably think that God here was doing something or told Joshua to do something where after this vision, Joshua would take a little stone with seven sides and possibly inscribe on it the words of the branch, which he was supposed to wear mainly as a reminder of everything that just happened. So that's probably what's going on here with the stone. But more important than that, All that leads, though, to the last line here, verse 9. The last line. And here's really the climax of the whole chapter and the whole vision. Just as a reminder, it says in verse 9, I will engrave its description, declares the Lord, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In church, now we know that's really what this whole vision has been about. Because think about it, it could have been thought that this is just something for special people like Joshua back then. Now, he's the high priest. He's such an important person. He had a special role. And so people could have thought, well, Zechariah saw that for Joshua, for him, God did something so unilaterally gracious and free to remove his filth and give him clean clothes. Maybe this is just something mainly for Joshua. But if anyone hearing this back then or for us today thought that, verse 9 now shows us, no, that's, that's not the case. Instead, remember, verse 8 already told us this is a sign. A sign of what? Well, first, most generally, it's a sign that points us to the coming branch. But, but not only that, but now we see in what is this branch going to do? 
Well, through him, God is going to remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And on that, you and I are supposed to see the connection with that, remove the iniquity of this land in a single day with what Joshua just went through, right? Because of that word iniquity. Remember in verse four, Jesus came to Joshua and said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And yet now here, God uses the same exact word. And so he's basically saying, in what you just saw in a symbolic vision, I'm going to do that to the whole land. <laughs> Which is quickly so, so that we're all on the same page on this. The land here, right? Just like Jerusalem from verse two is often the Old Testament symbolic way of talking about God's people who fill the land. Right, and so all that said, you and I can now see it hopefully really clearly. God is truly foretelling the gospel of Jesus here. Because like he just did with Joshua, this high priest, so the point is when this branch comes, he will unilaterally do that for all his people. <laughs> Which then finally, in our fourth and last step in this section, leads us to verse 10. And here we're just going to see some results of this quickly. So look at verse 10, the last verse of the chapter. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So quickly on that, you can see that in that day, that's an often way in the Old Testament about talking about the days of the coming king, the Messiah, and what we get to enjoy forever because of him. And what's talked about here, well, in basic, it's a special peace for God's people. You can see that. It's God's provision being symbolized as they each have their own vine and their own fig tree. And then finally, it's this unique communal unity and love amongst them as they're inviting one another, one another over. Right, and so all that covered, that's our third and last section in verses 6 through 10 here at church. And again, let's just be super clear. You can hopefully now see that this chapter is actually not just some general gospel truths. But this is truly a foretelling of the gospel of Jesus. In an Old Testament vision, an Old Testament prophecy. Because as for Joshua, he's to go after this and, and love and live for the Lord in obedience just like we are. But again, even that's actually not even the main point of this final section here. Rather, again, the main emphasis is this coming branch. He's the sign this is all pointing to. And he is going to do what we just saw with Joshua definitively in a single day for all of God's people. And remember, what did Joshua do to deserve this? Or what did Satan do to stop it? And the answer really is nothing. Because brothers and sisters, if God decides to plan this all the way back then and do this and accomplish this, which he does, then he can do it. Which finally, just make sure we bring this home to you and I. That means for you and me. Let's just be really clear. No matter how filthy you may be. No matter how unfit to feel in God's presence you may actually feel. Be in God's presence you may feel. The answer for Joshua back then and the answer for you and me today, it is the same. It is not to do our best to try to scrape away and remove our filth. Nor is it to despair that because you're so bad there is no hope. Instead, the answer is what we just saw. It's this God, this Jesus, this angel of the Lord, this branch who definitively, truly can remove all filthy garments and forgive our iniquity forever. And then he can wrap us in his clothes that are fitting in God's presence. And again, church, that's the gospel and it all happens because of God's grace and because of what Jesus, this branch, did for Joshua, which symbolizes what he does for us. And so that's this passage, church. And again, 
as I opened up with, I, ho- I hope you do now see perhaps a little bit of how incredible and wonderful this just one chapter is. Because it's such a clear picture of our sin and our big issue where we have legitimate accusations against us. But then it's also such a clear picture of our God, even the Son of God, in removing our iniquity, even in a single day. Which now, as, as we come to a close, does lead us to one more thing, though, in God's word here this morning. One more thing. And honestly, I know this has been a lot, but I hope you see this because this final thing makes this passage and even this whole book of Zechariah even more beautiful. And so as for this last thing, it's us finally bringing together and focusing more on these ideas of removing our iniquity and doing it in a single day. Because if you've been tracking those two ideas of really removing iniquity and doing it definitively, completely, like in a single day, those have been common throughout this whole chapter. But for readers of Zechariah 3 back then, and even for us, still though a question we might have is, but how? Because we know God is the one who does this in a single day, but we might wonder, but how? All right, for this, as we now close, just turn with me actually later in Zechariah. Turn with me to later in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12. And we won't be back in Zechariah 3, so you can turn to Zechariah 12 and stay there. And I think this will be worth it. So turn to me to Zechariah 12. I want us to see this. This is honestly just so amazing. So that's Zechariah 3. Very important version. But how will God do it? Well, to close this morning, let's just quickly look at two more verses here in Zechariah. Two more verses. And the first is Zechariah 12 verse 10. And you may recognize this first, but now hear this and notice how this connects to what we just heard earlier in Zechariah 3. Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So notice, spirit of grace, please for mercy will come. But when, amazingly, well, when, quote, when they look on me, on me, meaning God, quote, on him whom they have pierced. And so now God is the one looked at, but now he's talking to the third person about someone, about he being pierced, on him who they have pierced. And then what happens? Well, the mourning will be like, quote, as one mourns for an only child, as one weeps for a firstborn. You seeing this? How will grace and mercy come to God's people? God says, you will look on me, on him who they have pierced. And the mourning will be like one for an only child, an only son. Which then quickly leads us to finish with one last verse to look at this morning. This is Zechariah 13.1. So technically it's in the next chapter, but it's only a handful of verses later. Zechariah 13.1. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. To cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So again, we know that God says that he will cleanse the iniquity of his people in a single day. But now we know how. And how? Well, God says he will come. He will be pierced for grace, for mercy. But specifically, they'll look on him whom they have pierced. And he will be mourned like an only child. And the result? Well, verse 1 here. On that day, that single day there shall be a fountain opened whereby God's doing and God's grace alone they we are cleansed of all of our sin and uncleanliness and so it happened 2,000 years ago on Golgotha Hill Church and brothers and sisters that's the good news 
the literal news of what happened in history. The living God is that intentional and wise. He told us this in the Old Testament. He came, accomplished it in the New Testament. And so finally, for you and me, let's just make sure, we don't just hear this, but we each have personally embraced this God and this gospel. Let's, let's not feel that we need to earn this or deserve this, because honestly, this is just too big and wonderful to be earned or deserved. Instead, let's just day in and day out embrace this as the good news. Let's continually love and trust this Jesus for forgiveness and his righteousness. And then finally, like Joshua, because our filth has been removed and because we have been given clean clothes, let's live accordingly. Amen, church?